1: Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome a very special guest onto today's episode, Dame Eileen Atkins. A three-time Olivier Award winner, she has been on the UK stage for over 65 years, most recently in her one-woman play Ellen Terry and In the Height of the Storm. She's appeared in many films, including Equus, The Dresser, Gosford Park and Robin Hood. Her screenplay for the film Mrs Dalloway won an Evening Standard Award and for television she co-created Upstairs Downstairs with her friend Jean Marsh. She won a BAFTA and an Emmy for her part in Cranford. She played Queen Mary in the Netflix television series, The Crown, and for years appeared on Doc Martin. Appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1990, she became a Dame in 2001. And later she received an honorary doctorate of arts from City University, London, and then was awarded an honorary doctor of letters by Oxford University. Welcome to our shelves, Dame Eileen. It's truly an honor to have you here with
2: us today. Hello no, no, I'm very pleased to be here.
1: Well you've had and continue to have the most impressive and wide-ranging career which brings me to your very latest achievement. Um, Virago has just published your brilliant memoir Will She Do which is a candid and often very witty beautifully told account of the first 3 decades of your life from growing up on a council estate in Tottenham in northeast London and dancing on the stage of the working men's pubs under the stage name Baby Eileen then through falling in love with acting and the of Shakespeare as a teenager, to your breakthrough at age 32 on Broadway with The Killing of Sister George, for which you received the first of your four Tony Award nominations. And I'm very keen to ask about your acting, of course, because you've had so many wonderful roles and your performances are beloved and admired by so many people. But before we get onto those, let's start with your memoir, if we may. Um, And first off, I wanted to ask, why now? In your acknowledgments, you thank Lenny Goodings, the chair of Virago Press, for her guidance during the writing process, but you also say that she first asked you to write this book back in 2010. So I'm curious to know what made you finally put pen to paper and was it something you'd considered doing before Lenny had approached you even?
2: Well, Yes, I had considered it before, about, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. I'd always intended to write some kind of book for young actors about our cooperative company uh, repertory company that we ran in Cornwall because that was rather special that just a lot of people got together and did rep and we it really was a cooperative situation and um, I thought well along the way of telling that I can maybe give some hints to actors about how absolutely impossible it is to get going and um some acting almost with acting tips in it but I wrote a bit of it and and took it to a publisher which I'm afraid I can't remember which publisher now and they were very interested but they wanted me to put a lot of sex in because they thought it was for teenagers and I had to do some teenage sex in it I don't know the whole thing I thought oh I can't write about sex um so (laughs) I um and drifted away and I thought no I don't want to do that anymore and then Lenny, yes, I think, as you just said, asked me um, 11 years ago to do this. And I wrote a couple of chapters and then forgot all about it. And the reason I've written it now is, of course, because because of lockdown. And now, of course, we're inundated with um, actors' memoirs. Um, But that was it. I suddenly thought, oh, how wonderful. I was in the middle of a play um, working with... uh, young Timothy Chalamet, Um, we were about to go into dress rehearsal and suddenly it all stopped. And I thought, oh, I could go back and find those two chapters that I wrote for Lenny and, and maybe see if I can go on with it. And I simply loved doing it. And I'm afraid I really did have a lovely life in lockdown. Writing, walking a couple of miles each day, coming back, writing some more and cooking. It lovely.
1: I mean, it sounds like from reading the memoir, you have an incredible work ethic and you've always worked and you're still working now, long past a lot of other people have retired and put their feet up. So do you think that you, did you need something like this, a project to keep you busy? Would you have been very bereft without one during lockdown?
2: Yes, I would have found a project. If I hadn't done that, I'd have found something else. Um, I don't. I mean, I've thought about it because every time I think, well, I'm not going to continue to act when i can't remember my i mean that's just going to be and that's going to be very soon now i mean i'm terribly lucky to be still working at 87 terribly lucky um but i I, in, in my mind all the time is what are you going to do when you finally have to stop acting so there will be a project of some kind always going on um i don't know whether it'll be depends how this book goes i don't know whether i'll continue writing a bit I've always written a little bit as you can tell by the fact that I did the script of Mrs Dalloway and um, I've done a couple of radio scripts of Virginia Woolf's work so um, it may be to do with writing well I but I don't know I might have a different project altogether I might take up pottery or something.
1: (laughs) We still have yet to see what it will be that's very exciting Um, but tell me then a little bit about this writing process you said it was very easy you enjoyed it um was it really pleasant to take a trip down memory lane and and did you did you find that your memories were sort of there to draw on quite clearly or did you have to sort of check in with other people and
2: corroborate what you'd thought about various things well even my brother has admitted that I have a terrific memory for because I did check things with him and you say yeah god I've forgotten that but you are quite right um so um, I do. I think I did have a very good memory, but I was helped enormously in the second half by the fact that my first husband, Julian Glover, kept this amazing scrapbook of um, my life as an actress when I was with him, which he gave me as a present wow. on my 80th birthday. And at the time, I thought, oh, goodness, oh, how awful, all my notices and things, you know, that. <laughs> I'll the away somewhere. Um, and he'd done it beautifully and he'd put, oh he'd made a big presentation of it. And, and but of course it came in marvelously useful for this because I don't I can't Google anything because I don't know how to use the internet. So I, I think I only had to call out friends about four times and say, can you Google something for me? Other than that, it was memory and this wonderful scrapbook that Julian had made for me
1: how beautiful what a lovely present it also makes me think of there are a couple of times in the memoir where you talk about going back to old reviews of of certain plays that you were in um and sometimes reading those in detail for the very first time what was that like was that a strange experience
2: that was a bit odd um and you think oh i was so pleased with myself then because (laughs) you only read the good notice i think that was (laughs) a twelfth night and um I'd been so pleased when I said she is an original viola. And then I read all these ones saying, oh, she had, was far too boisterous, and we don't want a jolly viola. And I oh, thought, no, yeah, oh, I obviously didn't get the um, lyricism or whatever it was they wanted from it. Um, I, I, I always get a gleaning of the reviews when I do something. I try not to read them myself because you really can't mm. be put off, particularly if they say, and that moment where she, and you think you can never do it again because you're thinking about that moment. Um, so I try not to read them. And all my life I've had someone close to me who will give me the gist of what's been said but I think you should always as an actor check what they are the reviews because a lot of people have put money up for you to do this play or whatever, and you need to know whether you're going to let them down so um, right so, you know I, I do I don't say as a lot of actors say oh, I never look at them i and I do tend to think, <laughs> oh well you don't care if you lose their money um. So that's how I go. I get the general gist. Um, And most of the time I have friends, but... um No, I don't have my husband to tell me for now. I haven't had him. For I have to rely on good friends.
1: That seems like a very balanced approach to it rather than, as you say, the kind of the complete not looking and the pouring over them and getting very sort of emotionally invested in them. But if you keep a happy middle ground where you're aware of what people are saying, but you don't sort of take it too much to heart. seems like the best
2: option i think it is the best i really do because after all they're just other human beings (laughs) i mean Mm. um (laughs) you know they it isn't the last word anyway but you do know all i will say is that if they're all generally bad there's probably something wrong with the production um and or there's probably (laughs) something wrong with your performance But if they're mixed, it might just be that a few people aren't quite up to what you're trying to do. Oh, you know, it's it's silly to get too upset about them.
1: Yes, yes. No, I think that's very sound advice and probably one that a, a lot of people should take. Um, let's talk a little bit about the other writing projects you've worked on, because as you mentioned, you wrote the screenplay for the wonderful 1997 film of Mrs. Dalloway. And um, you also wrote the play Vita in Virginia, which was very, which was made into a very recent film of the same name. Um, I'd like to talk about those in a second. But first of all, I'd like to ask you a little bit about Upstairs, Downstairs and um, The House of Elliot, which you created. And I have to confess, when it comes to the latter, which I don't know how many other of our listeners will have watched but I was the biggest fan of that when I was at school to the extent that my friends and I used to play House of Elliot in the school playground and we'd always argue over who was going to be Evie the younger flapper sister who was played by Louise Lombard and was our absolute favourite.
2: Well I'm absolutely thrilled I really am because <laughs> that one was was very much my baby Um, and then and oh, really? I, yes and I called Jean up and said look, I've got, them in, I've got this idea, and I'm going with it, and it'll be better because we've got known no now as a pair of writers if you come in on, with me. And she said, "Yes, yeah, sure. And uh, thank God I did because immediately they started shooting it. I had to go to New York for um, about 18 months, so I was never in on any of the um, actual shooting of it. And it was jolly good that Jean was around and knew her stuff and was able to advise, but I'm terribly fond of that series. And I would love... I think... I wonder if there's a box set. I'd love to watch it again. Last year, Louise Lombard's sister, who's in, has a television company, wanted to bring it back. And I was all for it, obviously. Um, but... Um, it hasn't doesn't seem to have moved on from that, but I do think it's one of the things that could be done in a totally modern way. And um, you know exactly the same. Our idea, but with an absolutely up to date fashion house. Um, and I don't know. I don't know why it didn't uh, take off as upstairs downstairs did. But it, 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 well, we did quite a few series. I can't remember how many now. They were enormous fun to do, I have to say that, because we didn't write any. I think we wrote one script of um, House of Elliot, um, and I'm told we're down as having written eight scripts of uh, Upstairs, Downstairs, but I don't think we ever actually wrote a script of Upstairs, Downstairs, but there it is, it's it somewhere <laughs> um somewhere. So I'm not going to knock it. Um, no, th- th- that kind of thing I find. Jean uh, and I had such fun doing both of them. I have to say that when we, you know we we have wonderful days down there, and most always in her house then, um, because she lived in the country and it was quieter and easier to work. Um, no, it, it was a great fun time and. Jean, you know, has had a stroke, so that's sad, And she's not as quick as she was talking. But she's still, if I can still make her remember bits about the fun we had writing them
1: mm. and how did how did upstairs downstairs first come about? Were you just sort of knocking ideas around? I mean, you know, it's it's such a, I mean, it was such a favourite show, obviously, with so many people. Uh, but also, how did you, where did the first idea for it come from?
2: Well, oh, now I'm not going to remember. They, um, there was a big series on of a very famous, um, oh, all I can remember was Nairie Dawn Portals um, and Eric Portman, I think. Oh, it's a famous book. Um, oh, I can't think of it. It's, it was very famous at the time and it was all about the upper classes and we used to sit watching it together and saying, oh God, you know, it was a huge hit. Was it the it Foresight Star? Was, yes, well done, that woman. Um, it was the Foresight Star. I remember And we watched it and we start, you know, you always ch- chat a bit through television. <laughs> um, that's the awful thing an actor must know. They're probably talking here. Um, but she's... We <laughs> it's like just it's sort of saying to each other, yes, yeah, all very well, everybody's loving this, and we're loving it. We're enjoying it as well. But where would everybody say, oh, weren't those days wonderful? But where would you and I have been? We're both scrubbers, you know. Um, and she had a mother in service, and I had my father who had been in service for a short while. And mm. my father liked being in service. and we thought, well, why don't we ever see what's happening to the downstairs people? And I do think it was the first entertainment that did actually give lives to the servants, that not just a Mm. brief few words, but actually made their lives live. And at the time, I was very cavalier about the whole thing. I'm watching it now on Talking Pictures and I'm really loving it, reliving it again and watching it. Um, and I, I thought they did an amazingly good job on very, very little money. But after, after we would talked about this, we then it then started to grow in our minds that it would be great to have a series. And the first thought was to just write about Downstairs, and then we realized that you can't write about downstairs without having quite a lot about upstairs because downstairs copies upstairs. Right. So we then did have to bring the upstairs in, but originally it was just going to be about servants downstairs. And um, then it was extraordinary. Jean suddenly felt very brave one day. She got furious about not getting a part somewhere. And she called up a producer that she knew and said, um, John Whitney, and said, um, Eileen and I have had an idea for a series. What do you do? What do we do with it? And he said, bring it into me. I'm going into a meeting tomorrow. And we sat up all night doing a treatment. He said, let me have your treatment. We didn't even know what a treatment was. (laughs) We had to learn. And we stayed up all night and we handed these half a dozen pages in the next day and we were chosen out of 13 ideas that were aired that morning they chose us so I'm immensely grateful to that company Sagittar for taking us on
1: what an astonishing story. Well, it was such a brilliant idea. They clearly saw the the talent in it and, and you made it into something very special for a lot of people, I think. Um, can we also ask you, may I ask you a bit about your relationship to Virginia Woolf and her work? Because you clearly um, have a very good understanding of it. And um, I wondered if this is sort of a long standing admiration and what in particular kind of draws you to her life, her work, and maybe Missus Dalloway in particular was this a project you had been working on for a while?
2: Um, no, I when I was twenty, I had never heard of Virginia Woolf. And I, when I was twenty-seven, I was there was a film that was going to happen that never happened, and about the young Virginia mm. Woolf. And people thought that I, when I was younger, I did look a bit like her. Um, then I grew middle-aged, I didn't look a bit like her. Um, <laughs> Um, but then I looked like her, and this director came around with a script about this woman I'd never heard of. And so I thought, oh, I'd better find out about her. So I started reading her then when I was 27, and then the film fell through. And I'd by this time become an addict to her work, was slowly going through and reading pretty well everything. And mm. I just find her incredible. And um, I can't remember which came first and the order of works I've done first. Because I I read so much of it and thought, but this is so filmic. Um I mean, it should be mm. and I mean Mrs. Dalloway was the only one that managed to get on screen. But um I did a radio of To the Lighthouse with a fantastic cast. And um I can't remember the order in which it happened and I started doing the, the letters and I never call it a play though everybody else does which slightly embarrasses me because I call it just an evening of letters um which I cobbled together oh, okay. to make an, an evenings um and in this country it uh, I did it with Penelope Wilton and it, it wasn't It got nice notices, and then we had to wait a year for a theatre. And um, the the sort of punch went out of it, so it didn't do well in this country. But then an American had seen it at Chichester and asked if he could take it to America. And Vanessa Redgrave and I had an enormous hit with it um, at the Union Square Theatre, which is a wonderful square theatre in New York. And um, that took me aback, (laughs) I don't know. But it started out, (laughs) it started out as being, um, you know, actors are often asked to do for charity or for some little group, an evening of something. And you never know what to do. And I, Mm. I, at that time, was absolutely sick of poetry readings. So it started out, I started messing about with those letters to make a Sunday evening reading of letters instead of a poetry evening to, to raise money for some charity or other. And then it just grew and into, you know, people liked it so much. They said, you should do it. You should make it into an evening. And, and that's how that grew. Things mostly sort of grow very slowly. um. But I don't think I'm messing about with any of her work now. And I do rather dread there'll be an afterlife and she'll be waiting for me with a rolling. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, not a rolling, tape, I don't know, a pistol. Uh, no, I don't know what how she would stab somebody. Um, but I don't think she would approve of me at all. But I have put her work out to lots of people. The most thrilling thing was when... Patrick Garland came to me. When I, I went to Patrick Garland because I didn't know any of the kind of people who would be of that world and I needed the rights and I didn't know any in into like the um, Wolf Estate. Um, and so I asked Patrick Garland and he looked at me very nervously and said, why, what are you going to do? I said well I've got these letters and he said well I'm doing something about Virginia Woolf too and I was very suspicious suspicious of him and said what and he said I'm shaping a room of one's own for an evening and then he, he Patrick was a darling but he was a bit lazy and he had an evening that was like three and a half hours long at first and I was like you know, you can't have one person for the hours. So I did a lot of cutting on it too. And I said, if you help me get the rights to do the letters, I will do a Room of One's Own for you. I'll, I said, I can remember, I said, I'll learn this bastard because it was hell to learn. I mean, it was just hell to learn. <laughs> and first of all, I, he said, well, you read it for the first time. So I read it at the Royal Festival Hall and he put a lovely musician, but I don't know why he did it, playing a musician, a girl playing the cello behind me all the time while I was trying to do the essay of A Room of One's Own. Um, anyway, it, that grew oh, into God. something quite different. And doing that all over America was an amazing experience because I then was a, became tremendously aware of just how, what a huge heroine she is to most people. What a, I mean, they worship her. And, um, mm. when, of course, when I came back to Britain and said I'd like to do the same thing, or I'd like to tour around Britain, oh, no, I wasn't a big enough TV name to go and tour. So Britain never got it. I did it for three weeks at Hampstead. And then, of all people, Geoffrey Archer paid... For for me to transfer to the Charing Cross Theatre, that one done by Charing Cross for, it's not called that, Trafalgar, Trafalgar Studios, I suppose, hmm. down to there for uh, a further few weeks. But that, that was partly because he wanted me to do his next play. But he, but he did. He forked up the money for me to transfer. So um, that's a very funny mixture jeffrey archer and virginia wolf um <laughs> not I, one you hear often yeah, no i don't think but um i loved doing that show even though it was a one woman show and they are terrifying one woman shows are terrifying
1: is there there must be a certain thrill though
2: the thrill at the end of a room of one's own i well, well there was a thrill when i did the ellen terry too they are thrilling Things. and that I sort of yes. uh, chipped together as well I don't understand see people say to me did you have that awful time when you were 50 or 60 when there was no work or what I was doing with chipping together all these things so I I, I, I didn't have that slow despond that some people have um I just went on doing this stuff but I, I think actors should Look around, a bit themselves for what they might do, and not always just take two lines in a movie. Because you know, I, and I'm drifting off here. Take no notice of me.
1: But I think that's very interesting because I don't know. One of the things I noticed when reading your memoir, I I, I recognise that it's you know as an actor starting out in the business, you have to sort of take work where you can and do the things. But you always seem to be eagerly looking for the next thing and thinking kind of how you could how you could find interesting roles for yourself. And clearly, that's been a um, You've never sort of, like you say, you've never stopped in your career. You've always looked for the next interesting project and not just taken maybe the most obvious one, right? That's
2: right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Things that, things that interest you as much as, and clearly the, the sort of writing and the work that you've done in that arena, it opens up a whole load of possibilities, I suppose, in, in a, as a career path, right? That you're able to do the acting,
2: but you can also do this incredible writing alongside it. Well, it it you know, it's I I find it a help. You know, I, but but I also just have enjoyed it. I mean, just the sheer, you know, if you're not working for a couple of months, look around and see what, you know, what, what can I do? What might I do? Really well, you've always liked Edith Wharton or something. I've never done anything with Edith Wharton. But do you know what I mean? Just just thinking about things. I'm mm. still thinking about it. I'd love to have a third series. Um, I mean... I don't know how I could bring Darling Jean and do it again now. <laughs> you should do the House of Elliot reboot that you're talking about. Well, I'm I really am very interested in
1: that. I would absolutely adore that. And I can count a lot of uh, a lot of my old childhood friends, I think, would love it too. <laughs> so you'd have a you'd have a ready-made, have a ready-made small audience. audience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but sticking with authors for a minute here, I would love to ask, would you count Virginia Woolf as one of your sort of favorite authors? Um talking today and do you have I'd like to know a little bit about your reading habits more generally you said that you know for example that you didn't read her until you were in your late 20s but clearly then you started reading everything she'd written what um, you know what are, what are you what are you what your reading habits like today do you read regularly uh, do you find enough time for it do you favor particular genres and do you have beloved authors that you return to over and over again
2: I read almost anything that lands in front of me um, <laughs> I really do. And I've been like that always. Once I could read, I just read everything that came my way. Um, I'm not very careful about my reading. I take a lot of notice of what the people I admire have liked reading. And I have, um, I've got a friend in America who looks out for things and has just sent me a cracker of a book. And now I can't remember the woman's name because she's Danish and it's very difficult. And her first name is Tove T O V E, and I can't remember. Tove. Oh, Tove Dit something. Tove Ditmanson. My, it's. I think it's one of the greatest books I've ever written. Um, I think it's fabulous.
1: Is it her autobiographical trilogy? Is it the one that's
2: yes it's got this awful title it's known now now i gather as the copenhagen the copenhagen trilogy yes in fact when i saw that's an incredible book you've read it yes yes i loved it i think it's brilliant well it's i i put it now in my top five favorite books um i i i thought it was quite wonderful um but i can see that everyone's not necessarily gonna think that but um you know, is for very particular people who have that weird streak in them. Um, But I thought that was (laughs) absolutely, that's my latest favourite. And it's hard to go from writing like that to then reading some, you know, a, a book just that isn't as well written and isn't as passionate and isn't as full as that is. But um I, I do read, well I don't read thrillers. I have no interest in thrillers at all, um, unless I'm specially recommended by my two or three people who's who I take notice of. Um I don't read I read the notices of books a little bit. Um, I was a bit taken aback last night to hear a little bit being read by the Rooney, what's, uh, what's her surname? Uh, Christian name? Uh, Sally Rooney. And I've loved her books. But last night I could hear a little bit being read on the radio and I didn't know what it was. And I stopped and thought, "Well, oh, this is quite interesting. And then I listened to it a bit, and I thought, no, it's a bit too, it's going a bit sentimental. No, you're not going to like this. And then at the end they said it was the latest Sally Rooney book. And I I was a bit disappointed because I thought, oh, I thought she was really marvellous. And I loved the way they did it on TV too. Um, And I had like reading a book. But that third, this third book, I suddenly... um, But that's not fair of me to say that she's doing... She she does write very well. Um, uh, I don't... But I don't have a... Virginia Woolf is way um up there above most people and i I do read books written by men too
1: oh don't worry we don't need to mention male authors (laughs) (laughs) this is this is the virago podcast we can we can just stick with women it's fine (laughs) good 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 Was was reading something that you came to slightly later in life? Was it during your twenties? I mean, or did you? I don't get the impression from the memoir that you grew up in a house that was filled with books, but I could be wrong about that.
2: And no, the house had no books in at all when I was young. Mm. I mean, there were no books, and that we only had what was my choice from the age of seven to nineteen, and nobody I can remember read much of drama school. But I used to quietly go along and um, obviously I would belong to the library. And um, I, I, my, I have to admit that I, people don't mind you saying it these days, but at one time I would have been squashed. Um, that it was Enid Blyton that, that drew, drew, drew me in to reading. So I simply went through mm. her whole as you might say um and i still have a whole um uh, bookshelves and and where nobody can see them in my room at the end of the garden that are just um my enid Blyton books oh wow because she made me read so they're you know 1940s and things like that but um but then from there i moved on to um Oh, what was her name? The schoolgirl one. Angela. can't remember. Angela Brazil. Uh, Thank you. And then I don't know what I read. I think I started reading at drama school. I think I read a lot of um, memoirs of actresses, Ellen Terry Mm. and uh, Bernhardt and read their stories and they all ended up in misery every single one (laughs) and somebody said to me only the other day all all actresses end up lonely and in a bad way and i said oh thank you very much i don't really feel in a bad way and i don't feel that lonely um but but they do because they've given their lives to the theater and when there's no longer theater they sort of don't live very much
1: was there a great romanticization of the theater for you at that age were you reading those memoirs and thinking you know this is what i want to do with my life and and you would take you would take the loneliness in old age or whatever because the life was worth living
2: I don't think I ever thought there would be, uh, you know. I didn't think you don't think about old age when you're young at all. You just read, oh yes, that one. And then she was, uh, and Isadora Duncan, who was found in the, you know, in the gutter as she was trying to get in the theatre the in the pouring rain. I don't, I don't think I in any way thought that was anything to do with me. I thought that that. Um, you know they, these actresses, and they were different kind of actresses. And I was going to just have a very happy time acting in the theatre with other people all the time. And um, mm. and still, ha- luckily, still am. Um, no, I, I I don't know how I moved on. I think you, I started. I mean, Julian, my first husband, was very well-read because of coming from a very literary family and I think I started listening to him a bit and uh it uh, slowly and of course when I was at school that teacher tried to get me off Enid Brighton and on to stronger stuff um and I think I think he gave me a couple of things to read so it it just I just love reading I couldn't possibly go to sleep without reading
1: Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Dame Eileen Atkins about uh, the joys of reading Enid Blyton as a child. Just staying with your childhood for a minute here, your father was an electric meter reader and your mother was a seamstress. And as you explain in the book, the idea of being on the stage or acting, um, as far as they were concerned, was confined to what I think we might describe as sort of light entertainment. So I'm thinking that it must have taken quite a huge amount of both courage and conviction on your part to pursue the kind of career that you did. Do you remember feeling that at the time? Or as far as you were concerned, did you just want to act and that that was was the only way you could sort of see yourself in the
2: future? Um, I don't know what you actually feel at the time, but I do remember often getting very angry that They didn't, they in no way wanted to go along the path that I wanted to go on. Um, Mm. And arguments did really start in my teens um, when I didn't want to dance. And uh, it was just difficult to be so. I'm a wild, enthusiastic person. Um, What about acting? And so I. You know, to have parents that really didn't want to hear a word about Shakespeare, which is, to me, almost the root of theatre, it was was just sad, and I just couldn't understand, really, why they couldn't come with me um, in my head. Um, But I... I, You don't see yourself, oddly enough, I don't remember ever wanting to be like like most people think. If you want to be in the theatre, you want to be a star. I never thought about the position one might get to in the theatre. I just wanted to act. Just let me get out there and act. And I mean, I even joined up, which isn't in the book, but I even joined... Joined something called the Tanner's End Mission, because I sat next to a girl at school at one point called Nora Bradley, and she went to this mission. And it was very um, low church. And they did a play. And I went there purely to get into the play. I attended the Sunday school just because I knew they were doing a play. (laughs) And because I was a newcomer, they gave me the part of the maid in this play. But the minute I got it, I realised that the maid was the best part in it, and and it wasn't. I had a terrific success with the Zen mission, and then when they wanted me to be dipped (laughs) in water and um, you know they they did total immersion, but I said, oh no, thank you, I'm leaving now. I've done my performance.
1: (laughs) Do you always have a sort of gut feeling about whether a role is the right one for you?
2: Yes, but you're often wrong. I mean, it is really weird. All the parts I've most wanted to play haven't necessarily been my hits. Um, And often, I mean, the obvious one was The Killing of Sister George, which really made me known in any way. Yes, of course. And I really told them I was wrong. And I I did often tell people I was wrong for a part and couldn't play it. On the other hand, there are parts that you read and you think, oh, God, yes, this is for me, and it does work. Sometimes something very alien to you, you're good at, and you don't know you are. So, you know, you really ought to... It's just the awful word that um, used to annoy Peter Nichols, the writer, <laughs> about actors saying, but I want to be stretched. You do need to be stretched all the time. He used to say, I'd put them all on the rack if they want stretching. Um <laughs> So, but you do. You need. You need to be given things that are totally nothing to do with you to to make you try and be see just how far you can go and what you can do, and you get some nice surprises sometimes. I thought I was totally and mm. utterly, utterly wrong. I remember I turned it down for a year of um, heartbreak house simply because. I had to come down the stairs and as I, at the beginning, and as she floated down the stairs to sign I had to call the part, say, Pettikins. And I said to the director, am I the kind of person who you would ever believe said Pettikins? Sorry. And he <laughs> said, well, yes, I do. I think you could play, and I think it would be wonderful. But I argued for a year, and then I heard who he was casting, and I thought... Oh, no, I could do better than that, I think. So I called him up and said, "Mm, Do you know, I've been thinking about it. I wouldn't mind having a go. And he said, All right, you're on. Um, You know, and that was really good. It made me play something quite different. That was a very successful production.
1: Actors often talk about the notion of the perfect or the ideal role for them. And I'm curious to know, is there a specific sort of dream role for you? Or is this something that changes over time? Or do certain elements of... I don't know how you pick these these uh, roles. Do certain elements ch- stay the same and do certain things change? Well,
2: you, you pick apart part for a lot of reasons, not always just for the part. You also, um, it's who else is in it? Who are you going to be working with? Mm. Who the director is? You know, there's some directors that I implicitly trust and if they think I'm right for it, then all right, I'll do it for them, although... My heart isn't jumping at the part. I'm not reading and thinking oh, I'm longing to play that. Um, so it's it's a mixture of many, many things who you're going to be playing opposite. And I've often done parts um, that I think, this is going to be awful. I'm not going to be able to do this. And then it's turned out rather well. So, um, and and as I say, um, I can't remember what part it was that I was longing to play, and then I just wasn't that good in it. Well, the first Rosalind I did the <laughs> Rosalind is my friend. the first Rosalind I did was disastrous, but um I, I put it right a couple of years later, and I just went to America eighteen months later and did it there and, and, and did manage to get it. Mm. sort of right for me. I won't say right for everybody, but right for me, I was all right about it. Um, so no, there are many things that affect your choice of part. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to choosing to sort of actually playing the role, there's that brilliant bit in the memoir where you describe the Holy Grail as an actress has to be to search the text to serve the author, to be a conduit that brings the writer's imagination to the audience. And I loved this this phrase here that, you know, the, the way you'd explained it. But I'm particularly fascinated by your use of the word search, the way that you search this text. Could you explain in a little bit more detail like how this relationship
2: or process works for you? Oh, that's a big question, but I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you picked out that sentence because I was nervous of putting it in, and sounding really. Yes, I was. I was really nervous that people would think I was um, oh, just taking it all too seriously. In a way. Um,
1: oh goodness no I found it one of the most fascinating bits in the book it was the kind of sentence you read and then you start thinking it really made me think about how you actually go about the process and I think as somebody who doesn't act that kind of I don't know I don't often think about what happens not just behind the scenes but in an actual actor's mind when they're thinking about how are they going to portray this this role on on, you know on stage or
2: screen well you know the thing is We wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for the writer. And especially if, you know, Mm. sometimes if you have a a light piece that isn't that well written, um, then you're not going to kill yourself trying to serve the man. You're just going to try and make it as good a piece of work as possible. Um, You don't get wonderful scripts all the time. But when you know you've Mm. got a wonderful script, you... I think you must, some, you've been given, I really do feel as if it, as if I am just a vessel that the writer has to use to put his ideas across or his story across. So, you mustn't to me let your mind keep wandering and thinking oh i wonder if i should have a red hat or a green hat it, that isn't it must all come somehow out of what he's written you've got to know what color hat he would want you to wear you've got and you've got to another thing that i was nervous of um putting in which i didn't put i always see the part I imagine the part when I first get it inside my body as a sort of rod, absolutely covered in barnacles. And I haven't got it right until that is a shining spear right through me that can come straight out and on and out to the audience. And then I feel I've got a direct line with the author and I'm doing what. He probably wants. And I'm sometimes I think thought a bit I try I've learned not to be argumentative, but just um, try to just try to but, but one of the first thoughts a lot of the time people don't seem I, I just think the author must come first. It just they have to and they have to go through you and you are just what they use to get the ideas across. Of course, on top of that, uh, there are other things like the charisma of the actor himself and the ability of the actor himself so that, um, you know, when Peter Hall says, um, you know within 10 seconds when somebody comes on whether you want to watch them or not, there are those things Mm. that an actor brings to it, which is something else, which if you're aware of, won't be working. If anybody was aware of their charisma, then it wouldn't work. Do you see what I mean? It has to be. Yes. Um, they have to be unaware of it, and that's you have to try and be unaware of what you're doing, and just as just as full. I I can't. I can't. It's very hard to explain. It's it's a, it's a weird way to earn a living.
1: But do you think that your that particular interest that you have in sort of serving the text, serving the writer and being so attuned to what they're trying to do on the page. Has that informed your own writing? Like particularly when it comes to, you know, the adaptations or the um the sort of the scripts, uh, the, you know, the treatments you wrote for the TV shows? Were those things that you always bore in mind
2: while you were doing the writing? Um, we always thought of good writers. I mean, I can remember when the first meeting <laughs> I don't think quite what you mean, but this is what sprung to mind. At the first meeting we had about upstairs, downstairs, sitting around a table Hmm. with all these people who would be involved, um, John Whitney saying, now we must think about what kind of writers we're going to have to, who, who are we going to have to write this? And I can remember Jean and I saying between us, pretty well sort of on top of each other um well it would be nice to have Noel card unesco or um another person who's still alive i can't remember <laughs> <laughs> <It's a> terribly... <laughs> i can't remember the third person start aim high right <laughs> yes and, and they said what and we said have you got it we're aiming high <laughs> well i mean if you live in a world My education has been theatre, really. Um, I wasn't listening Mm. at school most of the time until the last couple of years. And I didn't learn anything much at drama school. Um, I almost think drama school is a washout. Um, It was what it was then. Um, You can learn technique at drama schools, but you don't learn anything else. Um, So I think by trying to do the best playwrights throughout my life and reading a lot of classical plays. You know, I've not done much, sure, but I've read a lot of his stuff. I haven't done much Pirandello, Actually, I don't like Pirandello. He's not for me. But um, if, if you're endlessly immersed in it, I think your own mm. um, language, um, your own feeling for what's written is heightened. It does give you, it teaches you something.
1: It wouldn't be an episode of Our Shelves if I didn't ask you a little bit about feminism, if I may. And I was struck when reading Will She Do that, although you do mention some men whose behavior is what we might call slightly inappropriate by today's standards in a professional setting, but by and large, it seems that there was quite a feeling of equality between the sexes in the various um sort of companies that you worked in when you were starting out, the sort of rep theatre. Um am I right in thinking this
2: or is it not quite as simple as it seems? No, you're absolutely right about it. And I don't remember ever there being a time where somehow the women didn't feel rather in charge of the men, rather rather so sort of, <laughs> you know, I mean. I really, I really felt. I mean, that that that. I don't remember any of us feeling powerless or that we'd got to do anything for them. the only The only time I ever got annoyed with some men was when I was doing a television, and I could see it. It was a, hadn't been well written, and we were trying to do our best with it. And I could see that if they transposed one scene into one place and the other one another place we would be it would be a lot better and I t- stood and said this as nicely as I could and they'd all just looked at mm. me and then literally five minutes later they said you know what would be good if we transposed and that you have to put up with a bit um that, mm. that's that the, the the women aren't listened to in rehearsals um, they are now, <laughs> they are now, there's, there's no problem now, it's it's changed, but I, I never felt in any way that I had to do anything, a man, a bow to a man in any way, um, I mean, and I've never done privately, I mean, I said to my second husband when I married him, you know, I'm, I don't do domestication, you know, I don't do shirts or, you know, they're every Indian to cook your meal. <laughs> You know, I, 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 I'm not domestic. I'm not. I I like my. I like a certain amount of domesticity, but like you know, just for comfort. But um, hmm. no, I have no. I, but I've never been. I've always hated anything to do with films in Los Angeles, and I suppose that's where most of this started. I don't. I don't know. I I can remember as. All those girls in um, uh, twelve, and uh, as we, when we opened in the season in Regent's part with Robert Arkins, I mean, we just laughed and laughed at him, and I can't ever remember having that feeling. That's all I can say.
1: I think the only thing I did notice in the in in your memoir was that it was. By and large, obviously, the the directors you worked with were always men. They seemed to be the ones in the positions of sort of power. But maybe that's... I'm not understanding how the power dynamics in a sort of theatre group work. Um, and, it, and, you know, the women... There seemed to always be very good roles for women. So there was always... It wasn't as if you were being pushed to the bottom of the pile. But were you aware that... I mean, did you work with many female directors in those days when you were starting out? Or was that not really a thing?
2: Well, uh, there weren't many I mean... The thing is, mm. simply, the women didn't ask to be directors, only a few of them. Do you see what... I, I mean, I don't think they were stopped because there was one... A, a lot of brilliant um, female designers. Girls weren't coming out of schools or, and thinking, I want to be a director and not getting there, because I don't think. I think... It seemed to me a very open world for women. Um, the whole thing. I mean, apart from the fact that if you do Shakespeare, you have to know that there are twenty-eight parts for men and three for women. But we all know that when we read Shakespeare. So you know, there, and there there'll always be more parts for men than women until maybe in three hundred years' time when there are more women than you know, m- women are really in charge. Maybe then. <laughs> There'll be the parts. Do you see what I mean? We were only reflecting. The stage yes, just yes. reflects what society is, and in society, especially up until the, just before the war, there the women stayed at home. I mean, it's so wonderfully all changed now, but it's it was women stayed at home, so there's nothing much to write about them. But I mean, it'll just come out organically soon, and we're yeah. we're beginning to get plays where there are only women, and uh, it, it, they'll write they'll write more, they'll direct more, and they already are um, beginning to almost flood the industry, and and they can do it. There's no 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 doubt that there's any difference between a man or or a woman director. That if you're good, you're good. If you're not, you're not. But um, I don't think they were kept. I just think it was the natural order of things that had been accepted by women for so many years.
1: Well, I was thinking also about the sort of time period covered in your memoir, the you know the 40s, the 50s and the early 60s. This is not exactly a, peri- a period in which feminism is um, probably much talked about, right? I mean, did you notice things changing around the 70s and into the 80s? Did you notice women in your industry becoming, I don't
2: know, more powerful or in positions of authority? I suppose I didn't because I was always thinking about the actress. And, of course, once it was agreed um, in the Elizabethan times that women could could play the men's part, women could be an actress, there should be... So I, I do hate the word actress having gone because it is so distinct that we were allowed to take over from the men then So because the actress has always been sort of with less parts, but she's always been supreme. I mean, actresses of Mm. the past are talked about more than actors of the past almost. And because I suppose it was slightly shocking, there's that wonderful... um, Yes,
1: yes, they've always had that sort of
2: edge. Yes, oh, she's an actress, you know. So actresses have had power. For quite a long time as a and so i all i noticed that i did uh, a tv and there was suddenly a woman director and i thought oh nice that's unusual and and then i realized that she'd surrounded herself with all the people that um, they have around them by women and that was a terribly enjoyable program to do it was something about virginia Woolf. But oddly enough, since mm. then, I've never come across another. I mean, I know people like Katie Mitchell and I do, do terribly well now, and highly regarded. So I think I think it has. It just has completely changed. It's completely changed now.
1: I mean, from the writing you've done and obviously from the roles you have played, you're clearly very interested in female driven stories. Um, I mean, Do you equate this to sort of feminism in your own life? Are you what does feminism mean to you personally, if anything?
2: I mean, first of all, why, if you're a woman you're bound to be interested more in a story about a woman than a man, and if you're a man, mm. you're bound to be interested more interested in a story about a man than a woman. I don't think that'll ever totally even up. we'll always be more interested in our own kind, but um. I don't know, the word feminine came out, and I thought, oh, yes, that's what I, I am. What do you mean? What, what What's different about these people, these feminists? And, that, and I thought, well, I don't understand, because that's what I am anyway. And then when I started reading Virginia Woolf, I realised, and of course, doing A Room of One's Own, if I'd thought about it, I didn't think about myself that way, but I was the perfect feminist spearhead there, going around really spreading the news. And... Um, <laughs> you know when yes you, exactly and when 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 uh, and I did feel I did feel this if I was waving a flag around America for women I did feel that it wasn't a sudden moment I thought goodness feminism that's the thing I think I was one automatically and then just thought oh good they're talking about it now mm-hmm. and so that that's me that's my area that's where I am
1: and as a final question on this podcast, each week I always ask my guests to tell me about a woman they admire. So could I ask you if there's anybody with whom you've worked or would, or you would have maybe have liked to have worked, who, worked, who stands out from the crowd, um, someone you admire or is, has been especially uh, important in your life, Dame Eileen?
2: Well, I don't walk around having somebody in my head that I admire. I'm going to have a funny one and a serious one, right? I can't get over how fantastic the Queen is at 95. And when I wake up in the morning and have to do filming and it's five o'clock and I'm furious with everyone that I've got to get out of bed and go into makeup, I think, how dare you think this way? The, chief, the Queen is over 90 and she's pulling herself together to get in a car and be told about some dreadful factory somewhere that she doesn't want to know about and try and learn some names. And she's a lot older than you, and she's got to keep up, so just stop moaning, Eileen, because she's still doing it <laughs> so you can so she's become a sort of flag for it. <laughs> and it's very funny because i't you know I've never thought of the queen like this throughout her life, but now now I'm old, I really think about the queen quite often when I'm doing something, um no, but my serious one is when you first said it the person who comes into my mind is someone very recent that I never worked with but I admired enormously and that was Helen McCrory I really Mm. thought and not only was she a simply wonderful actress, but it sounds a light thing to say, but I mean it in a deep way. She dealt with her death with such style and thoughtfulness for her children and husband. And I, um, she's been my heroine for the, since she so very sadly died so young.
1: That's a wonderful tribute to her. I think you're right. She did um, carried herself with such dignity towards the end. It's uh, very moving to read about it.
2: She never moaned. She never seemed to moan about it. Incredible. Yeah. I expect she didn't. even you know she probably did privately, but she didn't appear to.
1: Thank you so much, Dame Eileen. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I am thrilled that you were able to join us on the show. And I can't wait for all our listeners to um, get a hold of your memoir and read it for themselves. It's Hmm. wonderfully, wonderfully written.
2: Thank you very much, Lucy. It's been a total delight talking to you.
1: Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Dame Eileen Atkins, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture.